Why don't you open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We get to finish the book of Jonah today. It's been an amazing uh, book. Uh, its intent, by the way, is to put a camera on the person, the work of God, and a mirror on us. And uh, I just want to state this. I think it's true. If we're not careful, we'll miss the mirror part. We'll see Jonah, we'll see Nineveh, we will see those things, and uh, we'll miss the whole fact that there's a work God wants to do in a story, in a narrative like this in our own heart. In fact, that would be true of any kind of time we open the scriptures. There is a, there's an attention that we need to take to our own soul, and there's a divine intervention that must take place from the Holy Spirit of God to make us care about these things and apply them to our own life. So just in the recognition of that, I thought we could stop right now and just ask God to do that. I want you to get ready for it because you're asking God to change you. So open your little hands when we pray, okay? Let's pray. God, we recognize that the, the good work, the work of righteousness is your work. Father, I think for the most part, all we contribute is resistance. And yet you're so tenacious and so good and loving a shepherd that you keep coming. This story tells us that story and then some. So God, we give you our hearts today as we try to make the connections of Jonah's story to our own and we pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's do this for the next couple of minutes. Quick review if you're first time here to uh, the story of Jonah. Jonah you're probably familiar with, but... Jonah, a reluctant prophet, asked by God to go to a place, a wicked, wicked city named Nineveh to tell them that God's coming. And that's not good news. For them, it's judgment. Jonah wants no part of the mission. He hates the people of Nineveh, and he goes the opposite way. He gets on a boat to a place called Tarshish. God throws a storm in the sea to kind of get his prophet's attention. And, of course, the sailors now have to figure out why are they almost about ready to die. They conclude through Jonah's help that it's Jonah. Jonah says, throw me overboard. Kill me, and you'll live. And so they do, but God had other plans. A great fish, the text tells us, swallows Jonah. And for three days and three nights, Jonah spent in the belly of the fish. That's chapter one. Chapter two is Jonah's prayer while he's in the belly of the fish. And it's basically a conclusion prayer that says, uncle, God, you got me. You do salvation how and when you want with who you want. I promise to keep my vow. I'm in. That's how chapter 2 ends. Chapter 3, last week we looked at, is Jonah now getting a second call from God to go to Nineveh. And, and his message is really simple. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message. And uh, that's all it took, by the way. An entire people and the king turn from their evil. I don't have time to kind of go back and tell you how evil, but just think evil, like really evil. In fact, 100 years later, the, the prophet Nahum describes Nineveh. They got back to their old ways. They were heaping dead corpses in the streets. It was just ridiculous. And that's the place that turns from their evil and turns from their sin, and they repented of that. Look at verse three, uh, 10 of chapter 3. This is how we finished last week. When God saw what they did, speaking of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, in my opinion, this is where the book of Jonah should end. Good news. 
I love movies to end with a happy side. Like everybody did what they were supposed to do. Uh, Jonah had a little bad season. God won Jonah and everything ended well and everybody repented. This book, this whole book, by the way, so far has been just this ever-increasing depiction of the mercy of God for people who don't deserve it. Jonah going the wrong way, mercy. To a bunch of pagan sailors on a ship who had no interest in God and, and no, no time for God in their calendar, mercy. And to a people group like Nineveh, mercy. For, for this story, everyone gets mercy, so everyone should be happy, right? Jonah should be happy. Not so. Jonah gets violently angry at this whole circumstance. And I suppose we should just say this. This story now ends where it began, with a really stubborn prophet, with, with a type of person, a kind of heart of a person who wars with God, who ultimately will lose, but, but therein lies the contrast and compare for our own lives, Okay. Um, I told you a couple weeks ago that Jonah has more than just one problem. On the onset, just the first blush to the text, on the surface, it looks like his problem is his hatred for the Assyrians and the people of Nineveh. Okay, and that's how, that's how it looks. And in his mind, there's no way they deserve a preacher. That's why I don't want to go. And there's no reason they deserve a message. And they clearly don't need saving. They, don't, they, they shouldn't have it in his mind. And so that is what it looks like on the surface is his problem. And I will suggest to you that's probably part of his problem, but there's a bigger problem that he has. And that is this, um, that he has no heart for the Ninevites, but his biggest problem is that God does. And in his wrestling match, there is no room for God to love those people. And that's his biggest problem. His problem is not the Ninevites, his problem is God. Which I would just tell you that that is every man's problem. We're born with that problem. The spiritual blindness, the war that exists between natural man and God, you might not consider it war, but God does. It's the resistance of his control and his word and his way all the time, and, and Jonah has that problem. Let's dig in and see what this looks like. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, these are the lessons that Jonah learns and will learn through his life. Verse 1, it simply says, this whole repentance thing, the way it should have ended, well, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What was he angry about? He's angry about verse 10. Verse 10, God relented from bringing the destruction he said he would bring on the Ninevites because the Ninevites repented, all right? What do we call that, church? We use this all the time. In fact, I would call it the twin brother of this word we talk about called grace, mercy. Mercy is you don't get what you do deserve. What we do deserve is wrath and judgment. We, we deserve God to crush us because we war with him. We're stubborn, we're sinful, and, and that's just a sentence, but it's way worse than that. That's what we do deserve, right? And mercy is we don't get what we do deserve. But the other twin brother of, mer of mercy is grace, and that is that we get what we don't deserve. Peace, relationship, forgiveness. I don't deserve a relationship with God. I don't deserve his mercy and his kindness, but... I get it nevertheless. Every believer in here, if you raise your hand and say, I follow Jesus, you know both, grace and mercy. You're not being judged and you get what you didn't deserve. You get his relationship. You get his forgiveness. If you read this story and it startles you, welcome to the club because it should. Everything about Jonah's response looks crazy, totally crazy. You read it and you go, well, Jonah, and you're a preacher for a living. This is what you dream about, right? And he's losing his mind in, in this moment. 
And there are things we got to pull apart from this text, and we will in just a little bit. But let's just, let's deal with his anger. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. This is the ultimate strange preacher. Every preacher prays that he would say something and people would respond. And they do, and he's angry. It is a seven word, uh, an eight-word sermon that changed an entire people, and he is beside himself with anger. The little translation, just so you know how he feels about it, it's one thing to say that bothered him or that upset him, but the literal translation of this is it was, it was in his mind, badness with great badness that Nineveh would turn and God would relent. Badness with great badness. In other words, to Jonah, what God did was so, so wrong. It, it was terrible. Now, let me just split this between things. Clearly, Jonah has an issue with the Ninevites, and it bothered him like crazy that the Ninevites repented, but he was angry at God. I don't care about those people, God, but you, you shouldn't give them grace and mercy. I'm mad at you. You relented. The word anger means to burn, to grieve, to be hot. He was seething. Um, These people shouldn't be preached to, let alone be rescued. They deserve something completely different. I told you last time that uh, some would say of Jonah that his fundamental issue with the Ninevites was racism, like he just chose to hate a people. And I suppose that that could be true. I'm, I'm kind of led to believe maybe it was more than that or at least in addition to something else. Uh, some other writers would suggest that there's a possibility that the Assyrians, the way they went around capturing people groups and taking over countries is that they would go into city by city by city and they would totally wreck the city. They would kill the men and the children and do whatever to the women. And, and there's a possibility that Gaff Heifer, where Jonah was from, was a place that the Assyrians went into. So maybe, maybe more than just I hate those people randomly. Maybe this is a very personal thing for Jonah. What was making him so mad was the resentment and the desire for revenge. By by the way, how else could you explain the arrogance in Jonah's mouth and mind to look at God with that kind of attitude and declare, God, God, your goodness now is bad. You got to know that the trip from what God is doing in grace and mercy to a people group to call that bad has a a guy upside down in his thinking. He's gone backwards. It sounds kind of like Paul's description in Romans 1 of the, the problem of mankind. That God has displayed himself by creation, by what has been made, and God, man has exchanged the truth for a lie. And, and the ultimate sentence for what it looks like to exchange the truth for a lie is when you call the good things that God does bad, and when you call the bad things that happen in the world, and you call them good. Welcome to our culture. And Jonah is there. He's kind of at that place. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that Jonah doesn't belong to God. He does, and we will see that this morning. All I'm saying is that Jonah's attitude right now is godless. Mercy's not good, God. Your grace is not good, God. That's where he's at in this process. And I think there's some things for us to consider that even God's people can get so sideways with their reasons and for the reasons that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. In other words, there's a potential that God is doing something good, church, and you're calling it bad. Can I use a couple illustrations? Every time we suffer, we call what God is doing bad. Right? If, if it would be as much as like, uh, I mean, this happens. This happens to theologically kind of interested people. If God somehow rescues or saves people in the wrong vein of theology, 
we, we call God out on that one, don't we? Not them. Not that way. L- look at what Jonah says to God in uh, verse 2. There's three things that take place for him, uh, and it's very consistent with how we respond to God when we get sideways. It says here, verse, uh, verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here's what Jonah does. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. He tries to justify his rebellion. God, this is exactly why I ran. Do you need any more explanation? I disobeyed because of this, because of you. Let me justify it. Adam standing before God. God, it was the woman. It's not me. I didn't do anything. It's like us when we justify the way we treat our wives because they disrespect. That happens. Or vice versa, however you want to see it. Impatience because people are not being smart. There's lots of reasons why we try to explain or justify our rebellion, our war with God, because we think we're smart enough. Here's Jonah trying it. There's another thing he does here in verse 2, and he tries to make God out to be a liar. That's what he says. For I knew. This is what I said. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were kind and merciful. I knew you were relenting from disaster. I knew you. I mean, that's, that's exactly what I learned. I'm a prophet. Exodus 34, that's what it says about. You said it about yourself. So I know that to be true. So you told me to go to a place to preach that you were coming in destruction and you had never any intention to bring in destruction to the Ninevites. You're kind of lying. You didn't mean it at all. You were actually bringing some sense of rescue. So... God, your destruction or your mercy? You tell me which is it. You, you told me to go good after their evil, and yet you had no intention to deal with their evil. Sounds like the familiar tactics, at least it does to me. It's the same attempt that Satan did with Christ in the wilderness when he was being tempted to say that God was lying, God couldn't be trusted. Did God really say Didn't God say this? So disobey because that's what he promised. It's always a twist of scripture. It's always a lie. And here Jonah is so upset with God that he tries to make God out to be a liar. Like you never meant to bring judgment ever. You were always gonna be gracious. I think we do the same way. Sometimes we use scripture to hide our sin, don't we? Come on church, let's just admit it. We're all like this. Sometimes we try to explain our rebellion by blaming it. On God. Look at the next thing, verse 3 and 4. For the second time in our narrative, Jonah would rather die than change. Um, It says here, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Okay. When he was in the sea running from God, he'd rather die. And here, because of Nineveh's repentance, he'd rather die. Um, and, and this might sound like his problem, but I would tell you it's a very common issue for us today. You might not wish physical, you might not have a physical death wish. That not might be your problem, and I pray that it is not. But, but some of us war with God so badly that we'd rather live a life of death than obey. 
I'll go be in the junk pile. I'll go do the messy things. I'll go mess up my own life. I'll mess up other people's life. I'm so mad at you, God, because of what I've gone through, what's out there, what questions I have. I'm just going to live in rebellion. I'm going to live a life of death, which is very similar to Jonah. He's actually thinking about dying, but nevertheless, it's the same rebellion. God asked him a simple question. Jonah, do you have a reason to be angry? Silence. (laughs) Nothing from Jonah. No kickback from him regarding an answer. Um, I think Jonah at this point still might have a little bit of shame in him about his feelings, but nevertheless, he has no answer. So this prophet, God's man, sulking and bitter, hoping for the worst out of the Ninevites, he goes out onto the hill outside of the city and he sits there and waits for Nineveh to screw this thing up. That's what happens, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under in the the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So here's what he's thinking. This is no stretch. This is what he's thinking. There is no way these people can change. They're evil. There needs to be another word for the kind of evil these people are. There there is no way they're going to repent and hold on to their repentance. And then God will come. So I'm going to sit up here and camp out and wait for them to screw it up and then I'm going to see fire come from heaven and consume it. That's my desire. I want to see them die so bad that I'm going to wait for them to screw it up. Now here's where I want to stop and kind of move from the story of the Ninevites and see and watch God and how amazing he is, how relentless he is going after his man. All Jonah can think about um, is how badly he wants the Ninevites judged But God, having already dealt with the heart of the Ninevites and brought them to repentance, he now turns his attention on his prophet, who's been working this the whole time in any way. Everything, by the way, I would suggest in this book is all God's attention towards one man. Nineveh, at this point, is done. They have received their forgiveness. They have repented of their sins, and they are in a different position. And now Jonah is the one that needs to be dealt with in 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 a real, very real way. So just like God appointed a storm, we know this from the beginning of the book, and a great fish to turn the prophet to obedience. That's how this whole thing started. Now God appoints a worm, right, or a plant, a worm, and a, and a really hot day to bring the, the prophet's heart to submission to. So let's learn the lessons from this. Here's the plant, first uh, verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come uh, up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Finally, the grumpy prophet is happy. (laughs) Everywhere we've been with Jonah in this story, he's not been a happy capper. So it started with the call, not happy about that. He's mad about the storm. He's mad about the sea. He's mad about the fish. He's mad about the second call. Now he's mad about repentance. And finally, now here we are at the end of chapter four, and he's happy, exceedingly happy, by the way. Not just little happy, big happy. It was the ultimate big swing from the violent anger in his heart towards God. Now he's over here just rejoicing with all rejoicing that he's got a plant. Should sound absurd to us, and it is. Anyway, it just means great, excessive joy without measure. This is a pretty big deal to him, this plant. So just talk about your messed up priorities. Exceedingly angry at grace and mercy and exceedingly happy about a plant. Absurd, right? You should remember this because we'll come back to it. 
one simple question is why? Why is something so obvious so lost here for him? One word. It's because Jonah's got an issue. His issue is selfishness. He's a selfish prophet. Because at this point, the only thing in the story that's been for Jonah has been a plant. It's the only thing he's getting out of it. Don't miss what God has been uh, teaching Jonah here. Selfishness is the core of Jonah's problem. It's, it's why he ran in the first place. It's why he's mad. It's why he wants wrath for the Ninevites and not grace. Every bit of Jonah's perspective on God's command and the mission field of the Ninevites and their response had nothing to do with what Jonah wanted. This is not what I want. I don't want to go. I don't want to be. I don't want to tell. And I don't want them to repent. I don't want. And suddenly this plant grows over his head. And all it provides is shade. And he goes, no, I want that. Finally, something's for me. And so God begins to teach a lesson. Look what happens next. This is the lesson I call of a dying plant on a very hot day, seven through nine. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah isn't too stable. We've only got four chapters, and this is his third death wish in three chapters, okay? <clears throat> Good thing there's not six chapters to Jonah. Um, Jonah is angry again, exceedingly angry. And God says, listen, Jonah, you have a reason to be angry about the plant? And he has an answer this time. Before he had no answer for grace and mercy. Now he's got a plant. He's going, yes, of course I do. This, this makes me angry God. And so verse 10 is really kind of, uh, let's boil verse 10 down to one word question from God. Why? Seems like a reasonable question. This is what verse 10 says. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in, the night, in a night and perished in a night. Why? why? Jonah, why do you think you have a reason to be angry at a, about a plant? You didn't create it. You didn't make it come. You didn't make it go. It was here only for a day. What's your problem? It's kind of like if there's a, in the blank spaces of a passage, you can almost hear God say, think, Jonah. Stop and think. Get your bearings. We're talking about a plant. I want you to see your emotions. I want you to see what you're doing. Look at where you are. Get some perspective. Look down the hill at the city that's rejoicing in me. You're angry that they're doing that. And you're mad about a plant? Think. You get worked up in the wrong things. Verse 11, here's what God says in his response. He says, and should not I pity Nineveh? Do you see the contrast between God saying, you pity the plant, and he says, I pity Nineveh? It's interesting. And you should not, and should not I pity the Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and, and also much cattle. Let me just deal with maybe a question that might pop up here the phrase, uh, the 120,000 persons who don't know left hand from right, there's been some speculation on what he's referring to. Some would suggest that that's a depiction of a number of children or people of innocence, like of age, that were beyond uh, or, or don't really know what's going on. And so God's just caring about Nineveh randomly because there's a people 
there who would quote unquote be innocent. Um, maybe I don't I don't know, but there was uh, some that suggested. I think this was stronger to me, um, and that is that that was just the way God referenced people who didn't know Him, like people without law. God revealed himself to Israel. He'd given them the law. They knew him. They knew what they were rebelling against. When they sinned, they knew it was him they were sinning against. Nineveh's clueless. It's dark in Nineveh. There is no God to worship. There is no God been described. There is no law of how to live. There is nothing. So Nineveh's lost. They don't know left from right. They're just doing what they think is right. And so God is just saying uh, right there that, Jonah, I'm caring for people who are blind. That's where I'm going. To people who are clueless. God's pity is on the clueless. You should be thankful for that statement, by the way. Um, so in contrast, in prayer, Jonah, you had compassion on your self-interest, and I have compassion on people. What's your problem? Do you see how foolish you're, you're looking? And then the very last word of the entire book is the word cattle. Does that sound strange to you? Yeah, it should. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. It should leave you going, oh, oh, oh where's chapter 5? We've got to do something else. We can't just have cattle end this thing. Where, where's the rest of this story? Um, it's not finished, right? Well, I would suggest to you that it's not finished. Um, and that is the point. This story is not finished until you and I ask questions about ourselves from this text. It hangs there like a cliffhanger to point all of its attentions on the way we rebel against God, the way we fight against his goodness, the way we justify our actions. That's what it's supposed to do. And I would suggest to you, I have no idea whether you've wrestled with any of this. I don't know if you sit here in the text and go, gosh, that's me. Or do you do what Jonah's doing? That's them. This story describes them. And I would suggest to you this story is not to be finished until you've wrestled with those questions. This whole book, in my opinion, is one giant arrow pointing to the reader's heart. And it's asking a lot of questions. One predominant question, it seems to me, is that you're supposed to answer. Is God good and right to show mercy? Is it good and right for God to be sovereign over who he shows mercy to? That seems to be one. And then I would just stop and say, well, if you think generally about a faceless people, that's fine. But I would just suggest you move a little farther. Is it okay for God to be gracious to your enemy, your mortal enemy, to the person who hurts you, the person who continues to hurt you? Can, can you see God doing blessing on people that you have been hurt by? Now you're getting close to what God has done in Jonah's world. And I would just say to us all that in this story, we got to look at it and go, are we okay with God's grace going wherever he wants, even where we don't want it? Well, that's one. I was going through this chapter today and I go, or, or this week, and I kept writing down like sentences, uh, lessons that God was teaching me or at least questions I was asking myself and I thought I would just share them with you as we close so that we can get our head around it, maybe leave here with some, some more thoughts. But let me just tell you something that I think is obvious from this text. You and I will always discover anger if we're not completely submitted to God. There is no other feeling, there is no other outcome from our lack of submission than I'm gonna be angry. Just like Jonah if we truly embraced, and I would got to get this whole phrase, God's goodness in God's sovereignty, then your experience of what happens and what God does around you would be one of joy and peace. But if you don't like God being sovereign or you think he uses his sovereignty to do a bad thing, then you're going to be angry. You're going to be upset with him. If you're going to be honest, and I think you should be today, 
When are you the most upset? When are you most angry? Can I just boil it down? I think we all share this, this particular perspective. When things are out of control and when you can't see the circumstances as God's good. It's out of control, God, and there's nothing going to come from this. There's nothing good in this. You, you can't make good out of this. You can't bring grace to this. You can't bring blessing to this. This circumstance is bad, and you did it. Because <laughs> I'm going to believe you're sovereign, but this is not good, and you've got to do it together. Church, you've got to do it together. You've got to say he's sovereign, and you've got to say he's good. And if you think he's sovereign, and you think he's always good, then what you're left with is what you don't know. And what you don't know is how these things are going to work out for your good and his glory. But nevertheless, you're still at a better place. You can rejoice even in the unknown because you know he's in control and he's good. And if you ever doubt either one of those things, I can promise you one of your emotions in the future will be anger, okay? Let me, let me add another thought to you. I think it's true. People who get angry at grace for others typically forget they have a need for grace themselves. The only way you can resist God pouring out on other people is you think there's something more special about you than there really is. It's kind of the issue of forgiveness, kind of the same thing. In Ephesians 4, this is what it said. Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as in Christ. God forgave you. Okay, so here's the driving force behind forgiveness. It is because you've got a pile, a mountain of debt that you can't deal with, and God forgave you. So he just simply says, look through that, and you can forgive those who sin against you, right? Isn't that what it's saying in Ephesians 4? Well, that's the same kind of idea here. You would think that this perspective of where I come from and my struggles and my issues would have me not withholding forgiveness or grace to other people. Like I would just be giving it away because I'm so overwhelmed with receiving. But that isn't our nature either. We're simply grateful to receive and then we like to sit in the throne and judge. That's how it happens. Church, let me ask you a question. How do you calculate the measure of God's grace you receive every day? Do you? I'm going to be honest about myself. It probably doesn't come up in my cognitive thinking a lot. If someone said stop and think about it, I could. But how much do you think about this ongoing, sustaining grace every day? Like God just wakes you up with grace. And he feeds you with grace. And he overcomes your failures with grace. And he blesses you beyond what you deserve with grace. I mean, grace is just it all the time. How much do we actually calculate or measure the quantity? Can you see it clearly? And, and this might address some of you, maybe not all of you, but because, you know, we're a Bible-teaching church, in spite of how much you know of the Bible, in spite of how much and how long you've walked with God, and in spite of how old you are, let's say you're decades and decades as a Christian, and you know so much, and you read so well, and you've been in church so long, and you've served so many years in all those things. Do you remember where you came from? And can you really confess what you really are without him? See, that's what creates this sense of gratitude that allows you to see wherever God decides to open up and pour out of just joy, just thankfulness. I know Tyler used it last week, but Luke chapter 8, there's the story of a, a tax collector, dregs of society, lowest of the low, 
and a Pharisee, a religious leader, and they're both praying. And the Pharisee says, God, you're so lucky to have me on your team. I'm sharp and I'm smart and I care and I pray and I give and I'm religious and I'm, I know I'm, I'm, you're so lucky to have me. And the, the tax collector, all he could do was bang on his chest and say, God, I got no other thoughts but just mercy. Have mercy on me. Can I suggest to you that the reason why he told that parable was that he wants all of us to see ourselves as the tax collector every day, every day. And I will tell you this, humble people are too busy living a life of thankfulness to sit in bitterness at God's grace going anywhere. I'm too busy. (laughs) I'm just thankful. So this may or may not apply, but I think it does in our culture, and I think it's worth saying. Um, There are some um, in our church world who only see the evil in the world to sit around and... um, Hope for the judgment of God to solve the problems. Like we would see a particular type or a group or whatever, and they they have uh, raised their fists to the heavens and they decide to live a lifestyle or whatever that rejects God and and order and truth, and they just live there. And they're, they're making a mess of everything, and they're making a mess of even affecting your life some way. And so we're going, you know what they get? Man, they're going to get what they deserve. Or I'm, I'm praying that God uses that to bring judgment on our people or whatever. Can I just give you something else to, to think about? I would suggest to you that God's people don't wait for his judgment. We pray for his mercy all the time. It's like Jesus hanging on the cross. The, the, his killers hung him there, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue. And, and we, if anybody, should have that demeanor. It's sinners saved by grace. If there's a group of people, and, they're, and I got it, man, broken and stupid is broken and stupid, and it's not hard to see. And when it does that, you pray for mercy. God, would you show up? Would you extend yourself? Would you rescue? Would you redeem? You don't wait for God's judgment. Make sense? Okay. One other thought, I kind of hinted at it earlier, but I would suggest to you, just as a cautionary tale, no one is immune to seeing God's goodness as badness. No one. I'm not saying how much it can happen. I'm telling you that it can. And no one's immune to it. In my life, the list of things too lofty for me to understand is greater than it was. At 58 years old, most of what I have in my head is too big for me to understand. When I was younger, I thought it was a small list. Anybody say amen to that? When you're younger, you think it's easy, and it gets really complicated. Um, But I will share with you a couple of, uh, uh, at least a couple of mistakes I made commonly when I was younger. I used to conclude that some of the things I thought God was doing, um, turns out he he wasn't. (laughs) And some of the things I thought God wasn't doing, turns out he was. God doesn't do that. Uh Uh-oh, he does. God, God does that, oh, it's not God. I didn't know, I still don't know, clearly all the time, but I would just suggest to you that the demeanor of humility and, uh, is true. And um, here you have the prophet, theologically trained, knowledgeable spokesman for God. Sounds like a pretty good title. Sounds like a pretty sharp guy. Was convinced that God was doing something bad by having anything to do with the Ninevites. And he was wrong. And I will also tell you, this might make you feel a little bit better. I don't think you pick wrong. I mean, that's the whole point of this. No one knows they're wrong. Um, it just happens. If we knew where we were wrong, we'd change it. We just don't know. 
Just walk in humility. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what this is all about. Be humble. And then I want to uh, finish chapter four because it does hang in a weird word, cattle. I don't want to end there. Um, Unless you're a cowboy, you don't like it. Um, Chapter four never finishes. And I want to give you the reason why. Okay? Beyond the questions that it poses us to look into our own prejudice and our own hatreds and our own angers and bitterness, our list of reasons why, and, and beyond it pointing to our beliefs, do we really believe in the goodness and the mercy of God? Do we really believe that he's sovereign in control of all things? Okay? The reason why Jonah doesn't finish, the reason why it's a cliffhanger is because it needs John 19.30 to finish. The scriptures tell us in John that the Savior is depicted as one who bore the wrath of God for sinner's sake. He came and lived a perfect life and he stood under the magnifying glass, the target of God, and absorbed the wrath of God for all of us. He was punished in our place. And as he hung there, absorbing the wrath of God that I deserve, he said this, it is finished. Everything that separates us from God, every reason why we should be judged, every reason why I should be crushed under his judgment hand, he finished it. He settled it because he bore it in my, in my stead. So, what you and I need to overcome the stubborn hearts that we have, like Jonah, Jesus finished. What you and I need to reach our running away from him tendencies, Jesus finished. What we need... Um, to open our eyes to the hatreds and angers of others is we need a Savior who finished. What we need, he freely gives. This whole story is about Jesus. All of it leaves hanging in this wonderful depiction of the problem of man can't be solved by man. It needs a holy redeemer who is Christ. The reason why it ends weird is because it's trying to point us to the cross. This many writers are better than me would say that... Um, so many parallels between Jonah and the Gospels. Jonah, three days, three nights in the belly of a fish. Jesus, our Savior, three days and three nights in the depths of the grave. One writer said it this way, Jonah went outside the city on a hill hoping to witness the condemnation of a people, but Jesus went outside the city to a hill to die on a cross to accomplish the salvation of his people. It all has a finish line. Jesus, the champion of men's hearts. Jonah needs a Savior, And you need a savior. And I need a savior. And he's free to all who would receive him. Okay. Let me give you the happy ending. Because I don't want it to end like this. Because it sounds like if you just read it, you go, oh, this is over. Jonah, just nut job. He lost his mind and died angry. Um, Can I I give a little bit of uh, reading into it? And I think I'm close. Um, Here's the happy ending. I think Jonah repented even though it doesn't say. And, and I'll, I think I can prove it. At least it's the one way I'm comfortable with. Do you know who told the story of Jonah? Jonah, yeah. Jonah presents himself as the fool. He presents himself as wrong over and over again. You know who does that? People who repent. Humble people go, yeah, I'm, I'm the idiot. Here, use me forever in a story of what not to do. He didn't stay hard. God got to him. And I would suggest to you that's what we pray for, that we would be humbled like Jonah. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, help us today to rejoice where you're moving and working, to be able to see it, 
God, where were there enemies, uh, where there are our versions of the Ninevites, um, God, help us to love your mercy where it goes, to pray for those who are lost and broken. Um, God, help us see the uh, provision of Christ for all of our wandering ways, our warring ways, our disbelieving ways. God, when we have a tendency to see your control and what you're doing in time as something bad, God, help us repent from that and walk humbly, trusting that everything you do in spite of what we don't know is right and good and true. God, the only way we can do this is if your Holy Spirit doesn't empower our souls to confess and believe. So we thank you in advance for even those things. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.